So an interesting question was asked recently on the message board, and that question was, what is comedy? What is comedy for? What is humor for? Why do we uh, enjoy it? Why does it make us laugh? And I guess the why we enjoy it is because it makes us laugh. And I've, I've puzzled this over over the years, and I've put together a few thoughts that I'm not going to claim are in any way conclusive, but I think are evocative and perhaps even provocative ways of looking at the question of humor. The one thing that seems to be true of humor is that it's like a mini-mystery. Uh, a joke is like a mini-mystery. And it's like a very, very short story with a twist, right? So to take a classic uh, joke, um, a man walks into a bar. Ooh! <laughs> right? This uh, is a... Uh, a man walks into a bar and you expect it to be a, a drinking place, right? Like a, a tavern. But it's a bar as in a bar of metal or something like that. And so he goes, ooh! And so you're expecting it to be a long joke, and you're expect you you are when it says a man walks into a bar. That's also a classic setup for a joke, like you know three men uh, walk into a bar and blah blah blah. And so you're expecting it to be a bar, and you're expecting it to be a longer joke. So you kind of mentally prepare yourself for one thing, and then there's a twist. And when somebody goes, uh, it's like, well, what's that? That's the end of the joke. Wait a second, what does that mean, Max? Oh, a man walks into a metal bar or something like that, right? And so there's a setup, there's an expectation, there's a twist. And the, one of the things that I think is definitely true of humor is that it incites you in a way to, play, to pay very close attention to language, uh, to the manipulative powers and possibilities of language. And I don't mean you would do this for any nefarious means, but I think it's important for alertness. So, uh, something that my brother used to, sort of a quote joke my brother used to play on me was, what's one and one? And I would say two, and then he'd write one next to each other, and he'd say, no, it's eleven. Right? And of course, if you would then say eleven the next time, he'd say, no, two. You don't even know what one and one is? Right? I mean, that's just a bit of a mind game or whatever, right? But what it does say is that it says, pay attention to the phrase and here, because it can be interpreted in two ways. The first way, of course, what is 1 and 1 is 2, or the other one, what is 1 and 1 and 11. Now, he doesn't say 1 plus 1. If he said 1 plus 1, it would be lamer to say 11. But 1 and 1 could be interpreted to mean either 11 or to mean 2. And so it's a way of saying, pay attention to, uh, to language. And that is, uh, to me, a comedy is all about alertness. Uh, it's about training your mind to look for nuance to be alert to twists or to changes. It's a form of mental exercise in the same way uh, that music is, and we can get into that uh, perhaps another time. Another time. So, my experience of, uh, of comedy was, uh, and this is perhaps more of a British style of comedy, but it really was around uh, mental alertness uh, and... Uh, it also was around the breaking of convention. I mean, the war between habit and innovation in the mind is deep and powerful and fundamental to human progress, right? So if you want to write a new or a novel kind of story, novel kind of story, great use of language there. If you want to write a new kind of story, it doesn't do much good to invent your own language, right? So creativity 
is a real challenge because you have to use existing things to build something new when so much has already been built. As they say, there is nothing new under sun or moon. There is only a pendulum that swings back and forth uh, for the most part. And so creativity uh, is, is a genuine challenge. Uh, even the Dadaist poets that I talked about in The Death of the West part two, the Dadaist poets did not invent a new language. They simply broke the conventions of the existing language. Or Gertrude Stein, who had on her notepaper, on her stationery, the phrase, a rose is a rose is a rose, was attempting to undo all of the florid language associated with the rose. Your lips are like a red, red rose. A rose is like a sinking sunset of swirly flower de moya. <laughs> Making stuff up, right? But a rose had been so analogized and become itself such a metaphor within the English language that one of the attempts, uh, conscious or not, of that group of writers, of which the most prominent was Ernest Hemingway, who went to go and visit Gertrude Strine and Alice Toklas, where they were living, I think, in Paris, was to remuscularize the language, was to, to, uh, to de detach simple objects from the increasingly florid language that surrounded them. And so, instead of saying, a rose is like a humana humana, her statement was, a rose is a rose is a rose. It's a rose. And you don't need to surround it with all this florid language to evoke the image in the mind. In fact, too much florid language destroys the rose and replaces it with nebulous puffs of poetic nonsense. And this is why a lot of the writers back then uh, were really into this fairly bald and muscular prose where a language was stripped down to some pretty core essentials. And you can really see this in Hemingway's writing. And uh, they stayed away from, from the poetic, which I thought was uh, an interesting swing in language. So, sorry, minor, minor, uh, minor sidestep. So humor to me has always been about setting up expectations and then... Uh, and then changing them. And that is uh, something that... And, and also containing very compact levels of, uh, of truth. And very, very compact levels of truth. So, you know, some of those, you know, sometimes fairly bigoted statements, you know, uh, uh, a Jew and a black and an Oriental walk into a bar and then they go hamna hamna hamna. Now those are of course are about reinforcing stereotypes and the truth that they contain is stereotypical and quite probably bigoted. But it does tell you a lot about a particular uh, piece of information. And, uh, sorry, about a particular perspective that people have. And so that setting up of expectations, the need to pay attention to language there is, in humor also, there can be, and I think quite often is, an element of aggression. It's like uh, magicians can be that way as well, illusionists. Uh, I'm in control, and I'm going to outsmart you. A joke is all about outsmarting you. So a joke that is too obvious is not a joke. So if the joke had been, what's one and one, two, well, that's not a joke. That's just a math question, right? But, uh, sorry, what's one plus one with two? Uh, that's, it's not a joke, right? What's one and one can go either way. And it's a form of manipulation and domination because no matter what answer the person gives, you switch the answer and then you're cleverer and you fooled them. And so there is an act of mental superiority uh, in joke telling 
And this is why I've noticed, uh, I don't think it's statistically provable or proven, but I've noticed that uh, insecure people will often go into comedy as a form of, um, uh, of domination, right? Of being smarter. Of being smarter. Comedy also does a great job of puncturing pretension. Uh, as Gertrude Stein's, hey, it does fit, a rose is a rose is a road, punctures the pretension of the romantic poetry around a flower, a rose. And so there was a comedian uh, I saw once who had the sort of following routine about guys who uh, who were interested in strapping themselves to trees during a Florida hurricane because they wanted to experience extreme elements and so on. And he was, of course, drinking and smoking throughout this routine. And uh, he was saying, uh, uh, well, these guys are idiots, right? These guys who are strapping themselves to trees during a hurricane. He says, you know, because they say, well, I'm an Iron Man. I'm fit. And he says, well, it's not so much that the wind is blowing. It's what the wind is blowing. If you get hit in the chest with a Volvo, it doesn't really matter how many sit-ups you did yesterday now, does it? <laughs> Which I thought was actually a very funny routine. And it punctures the vanity. And th there's a lot of propaganda in in comedy uh, and um, and so this guy who's drinking and smoking is saying that you know extreme fitness buffs are ridiculous and he's of course taking that and you see this all the time in movies where the cool person is just right and the, the, the like you see this all the time in medical dramas right where there's the the trembling lipped young uh, intern or, or first year resident and then there's the grizzled old aggressive surgeon and they have to sort of go up and beg and plead and want attention. This was the whole first couple of seasons of Grey's Anatomy where you just you get this hierarchy that's just set up and comedy, particularly stand-up comedy is very often an argument for a particular hierarchy. Like, extreme fitness buffs are ridiculous, relax, uh, have a drink and a smoke uh, and uh, let's laugh at these idiots who were getting up and strapping themselves to trees and doing extreme fitness things and are so deranged that they think that sit-ups will somehow protect them from a car that is uh, flying through the air, right? I mean, so there's a kind of, again, that's a form of aggression and superiority and a mocking of, uh, of this kind of, uh, kind of perspective. And that is something that you also see quite a bit uh, in comedy, and it's a way of uh, establishing a perspective against another perspective. 